This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. Each week, a top nonfiction author is interviewed by a journalist, public policymaker, legislator, or others familiar with their work. We post the podcasts every Sunday, subscribe, and never miss an episode. This week, our guest is Jim McKelvey, Square co-founder and author of the book, The Innovation Stack. He's interviewed by Washington Post technology reporter, Kat Zagreski. So, Jim, in your new book, Innovation Stack, you tell the story of going from being a glass blower in St. Louis to teaming up with the founder of Twitter to build a multi-billion dollar payments company. In the book, you talk a lot about perfect problems. When did you realize that small business payments were a perfect problem? So it's funny. Um, I, uh, I needed a way to sort of delineate problems. And if you think about the world's problems, okay, you got the ones that are solved. So we can copy the solution. It may still be a problem, but somebody's already figured it out, right? Um, and then you have the ones that, for one reason or another, cat aren't solvable. They're just we just don't have the way to do it. But then that still leaves this group in the middle of solvable problems that haven't yet been solved. And so that's what I call the perfect problem because that, in fact, is the focus of what I think entrepreneurship is. And, and in other words, you're looking for a way to solve a problem that is solvable but hasn't been done yet. So you're going to have to do something new, and you don't get to copy. And so what happened with Jack, um, Jack Dorsey and I, uh, you know, got a – so I hired Jack when he was 15. When he was a, he was a you know, a high school student, he came in to work at a company that I actually still have. Um, I don't run any of my companies, but I also never sell them. So they, <laughs> this one's been around for 30 years. And um, Jack and I started working together. Then he went off to, to college, and, uh, you know, we kept in touch. Uh, and then uh, he got kicked out of Twitter um, the first time, <laughs> I guess. Um, and they, uh, you know, they they showed him the door, and he came back to St. Louis, and we were hanging out and talking, and uh, decided we'd start a company together. And so we then were kicking around for ideas, and he didn't have an idea, and I didn't have an idea. So we started looking for problems that we can solve, and um, came up with the problem of how small merchants got paid. And when did you come to that conclusion? You know, you talk in the book about your work as as a glassblower. Tell me about that moment when you realized that payments were a a problem for small merchants. So it was funny because, um, as I said, you know, Jack had just been kicked out of Twitter. And and my first reaction to that was, you know, Jack is, he was sort of like a little brother to me. Like he was somebody I felt like I needed to sort of stand up for. Um, and, And what they did to him at Twitter the first time was just completely vile. Um, so my first suggestion was, hey, let's go out to San Francisco and get even with those guys, right? <laughs> like it was just like it was like spite uh, motivated. But um, Jack, to his credit, said, well, why don't we do something more positive and just start a new company? So that was the, um, uh, you know, that was the impetus. And then um, we were looking for a problem. And the only thing we determined was that uh, our company was going to be, you know, sort of uh, uh, focused on, I guess I i find my phone here. i got to use it as a prop. Yes. Uh, these things. We were going we to you know, focus on these things um, because the iPhone had just come out, and uh, we knew it was going to be important. So we'd hired an engineer from Apple, and he was starting in two weeks. So that gave us two weeks to figure out what we were going to do. And we couldn't think of anything. We, you know, we were you know, kind of stretching for ideas, and I went back to my glass studio. So I'm a, I'm a glass blower. Um, uh, I, I, I make stuff that nobody needs. I make art. <laughs> That's stuff that nobody needs. Um, as a matter of fact, in D.C., I used to teach the glass blowing at Glen Echo Park. If, for, for, the, for all the local C-SPAN viewers, if you've been to the Glen Echo Park uh, 20 years ago, I was a guy that you know, taught you how to make a paperweight. Um, but the point is, uh, I was in my studio. I was trying to sell a piece of glass, and I lost a sale because I couldn't take an American Express card. And I was angry. I mean, I, was, I just lost this, this great sort of windfall. And, uh, and I was talking to the lady. It was a phone order. I was talking about one of these devices. And um, I have this attitude towards, you know, devices like this, which, like, this device is a magic device. It turns into anything I want. It would, you know, if I wanted it to turn into, you know, a television, it becomes a television. It turns into a map. It turns into a radio. Like, it'll, it'll turn into that book. Like, right. it will literally, tomorrow, you know, I guess... Turn into that book if you want. It didn't turn into a credit card machine. And so I was like angry, but I was also 
motivated to fix that. So I called up Jack on that device, and I said, let's make our iPhones turn into credit card machines. And so that's what became Square. And so the name of the book is The Innovation Stack. What is an innovation stack, and how did you learn about that from Square? So an innovation stack is not something we knew about when we started Square, but it is probably the most powerful phenomenon that I've seen in business. And, 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 and we stumbled across it. But the innovation stack is simply a way of interweaving inventions together, sometimes very simple inventions. But put enough of these together and they start to take on their own life and they create new industries. So if you look throughout history at the great industries that have started, almost always there's an innovation stack at the beginning. But I didn't know any of this. So when we started Square, it wasn't like, I want to build an innovation stack. No, I had, I had no idea that any of this was happening. And, and as a matter of fact, you know, we, I, I wrote this book and I've been you know, sort of having people review it like yourself. And one of the greatest compliments I got was from a very successful entrepreneur. He was, so he was interviewing me in, in this guy's living room. So we're in his living room, you know, and he has a, a painting on the wall that's worth more than my house. And I'm an artist, and I looked at this, and I was like, oh, my God. Um, so I'm all intimidated. And he's, you know, asking me about the book. And he finally said, he said, you know, I wish I'd known this when I was 20 years old. And I was like, me too. Like, but it turns out that there's this thing that happens, this process that can happen when you start to solve a perfect problem, something that has not been solved before. Because most of what we do is copying, and most of our tools and training and comfort is with solutions that exist. When you get out of the world of copying, you can build something that is truly different, but the process is different. And it creates this thing called an innovation stack. If you build an innovation stack, at least in my studies, your company will dominate the world. Like it will, it will just run whatever business you're in. And in the book, when you talk about innovation stacks, it was interesting to me that you focused on companies that, you know, we don't associate with tech, which I think a lot of people draw that parallel between tech and innovation. You focused on Southwest, IKEA, others. And, and so why did you decide to focus on those companies outside of the tech industry? Oh, yeah. So, so I'm a scientist by training. Um, and my father was a scientist. I've, I've, I've been very steeped in the scientific method. And so if you're going to do a reasonably controlled experiment, you need to eliminate variables. And one of the most powerful variables is um, the phenomenon of viral growth and technology. Like, so if you look at the potential for a company that does nothing really that interesting but adds sufficient technology to an old business, you can get outsized success. And I didn't want to study that. So what I did when I saw this pattern of the innovation stack, I said, well, I want to study companies, but I don't want to study companies like Google. Okay, so, so you look at Google, um, and they're whoppingly successful, or Amazon. You know, all these companies are fantastically successful, but like, what is it that creates the success? And the answer is, well, in some cases, you know, just the pure uh, disruptive nature of technology overwhelms anything else. So, so this is why I laugh when people study Google's business practices. Like, they can fund their own space program, like, which is tremendous, but like, their management could be crummy, and it's still such a powerful force, technology. So, so I wanted to exclude that. And if you exclude it, what you're left with is businesses throughout history that have built in innovation stacks and have still dominated their industries. And so I go back, you know, basically I start 100 years ago and I work forward um, just to show that the pattern is something that is systemic in the innovation and not just a result of having, you know, Amazon Web Services and, and you know, viral growth. And so some people who see this book on the shelves, they might be surprised to learn that it actually started as a graphic novel. Can you tell me a little <laughs> bit about that evolution? So I didn't want to write a business book. Um, I don't particularly like business. Most business books are really boring. They are these sort of ponderous, self-serving tomes. Uh, they're non-scientific. And I, and I was like, so I saw this and I thought, oh, I got I to gotta share this, this thing. And then I didn't want to write a business book, so I started looking at the stories of these companies that had done this, and, and these stories were epic. I mean, they were, they were, they were fantastic. And, 
And, and so I thought, I was like, well, well, I don't have to tell this as a business story. Like, I can use this as a, a this, this can be a graphic novel. So, um, so what I originally sold to Penguin um, was this sort of schizophrenic uh, manuscript that was like graphic novel, then text, then graphic novel, then text. And it, and it flipped back and forth randomly. And um, Penguin liked it, or I should say pretended they liked it. Because they signed the contract. And once they signed the contract, now they own the book, right? So uh, then they took me to this uh, windowless conference room in Manhattan and uh, had a little talk. And the talk went like this. They're like, you realize that your cute little comics are not going to show up on a four-inch screen. And people besides that are going to listen to this as an audio book. And, and so as an audio book, it's useless. Like, you can't take a graphic novel and reduce it to an audiobook. So right there, you're going to lose 70% of your audience. So if you want to lose 70% of your audience, just stick with what you got. Otherwise, you've got to rewrite it. So, so they were right. And so I rewrote the whole thing. Um, but I still had all these great comics. So I actually made my own comic. I'm going to – she's got her book. i got my comic. So this is free. You can't buy the thing. But if you go to jimmckelvey.com, I will give you a copy of, of this because, look – this is a story of a banker, okay? Uh, this is a banker. But it's, it's, it's like, uh, there's a murder. Okay, there's a, there's a murder on that page, and there's a funeral, and, uh, oh, here's the destruction of a major city, right? I mean, like, this is, this is comic book stuff. And, and the, reason, the reason I wanted to do a comic was because, you know, the tales of entrepreneurship and the tales of these companies that build innovation stacks tend to be, really good stories because there's a lot of failure and failure actually makes good stories. Like nobody wants to hear about success. Like boring, you know, but failure, like how'd you get that scar, right? That's a good story. So I, uh, I wanted to tell it in this format. And although there's only one chapter that sort of survived as a comic, like if you, if you buy the book, I'll give you the comic. I know I'm not going to sell this, but um, <clears throat> you can have it, you know? Uh, and, and, and they're good stories. They're fun. And, and, and so often I find that we sort of ignore the fun part of what it's like to do something that hasn't been done. Because, look, there's a lot of failure and you've got to have a sense of humor. But, like, mistakes, everyone loves talking about that. And so on that point about the comic book, you know, I know only one chapter has, has turned into a comic book now. But it seems to me reading this... If you were to write the comic book about Square, the villain would certainly be Amazon. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like when you realized that Amazon was trying to directly compete with you in the payment space? Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and believe me, I appreciate the irony of dissing Amazon when you're selling in the middle of selling a book. Okay. <laughs> so I mean, like, but I will, I will redeem myself at the very last second. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Amazon did what they do, um, which is uh, they looked at our market, decided they want it, and decided to take it. Now, when Amazon takes a market, they do uh, two things. They copy your product. Well, three things. They, they copy your product. Uh, they undercut your price almost always by 30%. And then uh, they add whatever else they have, like the Amazon brand and, you know, a couple hundred million customers and all this stuff. And then they watch you die. Um, so when Square was four years old, Amazon did this. They just ran the playbook. And so we were terrified, and we went looking for solutions that we could copy to respond. And, you know, we looked around for all the companies that had beaten Amazon when they'd been attacked this way. There were none. Now, there are, you know, companies like Netflix are already giant, but, like, startups, forget it, zero. Zero startups that I know of have, or that we could find, have survived this attack by Amazon. So... So it's like you are truly alone. And um, I was terrifying. And we looked at what we could do. And there wasn't even that much we could do. But um, Amazon was cutting, you know, undercutting us on price. They, they, were, they were being Amazon. And um, we were terrified. But there wasn't really much that we chose to do differently. So we looked at all our options. And in looking at all those options, we realized that they were all being done for a good, very good reason. So we just kept doing it. And we didn't even match them on price. So Amazon's price was 30% lower than our price was. Um, and we, we didn't match their price. And we just kept going. Um, and it lasted for about a year and a half. 
And at the end, on Halloween of 2015, Amazon gave up. And they mailed all of their former customers a little white square reader. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. This never happens. This, no, this does not happen. But it's, it's what happened. And, um, and that's actually what, what led me to the book because as, as somebody who's raised as a scientist, I needed an explanation. I needed to answer the question, well, like, why did this happen? Like, you can't just be lucky. Like, there, there must be some phenomenon. And it turns out Square had an innovation stack. Now, we didn't know it at the time. I mean, there was no label called an, an innovation stack. And there were a bunch of reasons that I hadn't seen it. But once I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, that was it. That's what allows us to survive Amazon. And it's what allowed all these other companies that I studied to survive, you know, like vicious attacks. I mean, you don't think, like, Amazon was bad, but what happened to Southwest Airlines in the early days was worse. Like, we didn't end up in, like, federal and state court several times. I think Herb, Ke- Herb Kelleher had it worse than I did. And so I wanted to ask you, I mean, you mentioned you looked around and you couldn't find other companies that had been able to beat Amazon. And in the book, you also say that you found some people who Amazon beat, but they weren't willing to talk to you on the record about it. Yes. So we found, I found many Amazon victims um, and talked to them personally um, and got their stories uh, and then said, oh, that's great. Could I, could I quote you? No. Nobody, even, even people who were in totally different industries, even who, people who were in industries that were now competing with Amazon, even like everybody was so afraid of Amazon that nobody would go on the record. I have zero on the record firsthand quotes in this book about what happened with Amazon. Why are people so afraid of Amazon? You'd have to ask them. I don't know. I mean, it, it, that's not for me to share. Like, but, but I will tell you that it was so severe that I could get nobody to go on the record. So there are no quotes. <laughs> Just me. <laughs> That's it. So right now we're sitting in Washington where there's a ton of scrutiny of the larger tech companies on antitrust grounds at the moment when you look yeah. at Congress, the FTC. And so do you think that Amazon is a monopoly? Not a monopoly in the traditional sense, but I think they definitely exhibited some of the, you know, uh, some of the behaviors of, 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 you know, sort of market dominance. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not an antitrust lawyer. I don't have, I don't have a, you know, sort of legally valid opinions on those things. But look, any company that gets big enough that it can, you know, move markets uh, ought to be looked at. You know, I, and, and again, I'm not a regulator. Um, I guess I kind of am now. I, I sit on the Fed. Um, but, uh, and I'm a big believer in regulation. I think, I think regulation, you know, is, is probably good in a lot of situations. Um, but, uh, but, you know, on the other side, these tech platforms, and Amazon in particular, uh, are very good at keeping the customer in mind. So I think what you're looking for uh, is a... Uh, tech platform that gets very, very powerful uh, that still maintains an, uh, you know, a semblance of responsibility. And I think Amazon's kind of done that. I think Google's kind of done that. Uh, I think Facebook's kind of not done that. So, um, you know, they, they deserve regulation in, at different levels. But, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about Apple, too, because Square couldn't exist without the iPhone, and later much of its business relied on the iPad. And so... How do you think about them in, in that context? So Apple's super powerful, um, and they're really important to get along with. Um, they also have great innovation, um, and I, you know I got tremendous respect for Apple. As a matter of fact, we built our company based on a product that Apple had, I think, you know, sort of introduced to the world, which was you know the the mobile phone. The, I mean, like this thing. That's that's an Apple invention. And so I, um, yeah, I've got a tremendous amount of respect for them, and they're also not somebody you want to piss off. Like, you don't want to do stuff um, like we did in the early days, uh, which could have upset Apple a lot. By uh, We bypassed the dock connector, which is that little connecty thing on the bottom of the uh, thing, and we put the square reader in through the microphone jack. And that was a no-no. Like, we weren't supposed to do that. 
And we thought we were getting in trouble with Apple when we did that. But then we thought, well, maybe our products are so cool that they'll just be, be good with it. Um, because Steve Jobs at the time, who was in control of Apple, um, had a way of sort of protecting products that he liked. Like if Steve thought you were cool, you were fine. Like Apple's lawyers uh, would, would leave you alone. And uh, so we, we approached Steve to save our butts. And so tell me a little bit about the design of Square and that process of creating such an iconic design that people recognize that's, that's in the Smithsonian and, and museums today. Yeah, so the Square Car Reader, which is about this wide, the one that I built was even smaller, was this wide, uh, had, a, had a basic design flaw. And it was one that I noticed and I chose not to correct, um, which was uh, when you were swiping a credit card through, uh, it was so so narrow that the card would wobble as it would go through. And as a result of that, a lot, it, would, it would result in a misread. So about 80% of the time it would work, and about 20% of the time the card would wobble and it wouldn't work. And this was, this was the result of my testing. So to solve this problem, um, I built another reader that was about that wide and tested it. And everybody was 100% with that. Uh, so then the question is, well, why did we build a tiny little device that didn't work as well as the big device. And it wasn't for cost reasons or anything like that. But the reaction to device was very different. If I used the big device, people were sort of like, oh, ho-hum, another credit card reader. If I used the small device, the one that's now, you know, in the Smithsonian, they were amazed. They were blown away. Like, what, what, what just happened? Like, remember the first time you saw a card go through a square reader you were impressed. Like, everybody was impressed. It got your attention. And so we took this giant gamble at Square to build a product that mechanically didn't work all that well, as it could, um, but just got your attention and just blew you away and just looked so cool and it was fun to have. And people were talking about it. And we were like, I think we just got to go for the cool. So we built something that was just super cool. And to this day, you know, Square's readers, uh, they would work better if they were wider. Um, but they're cool. They're great. And, and the funny thing is, it turns out that that 80% number really drops after a little bit of practice. So once you practice a little bit, you'll always get a good read. So we discovered that by making a product that was sort of less than perfect, we trained customers <laughs> to use our products. And then once they were using it, they were like showing off to their friends about how good they were at swiping with Square. And that's a major gamble, and it reminds me of one part of the book that you talk about the distinction between entrepreneurs and business people. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, um, so I was trying to discover what, made, what allowed Square to survive Amazon. And in the process, I saw this thing called an innovation stack, and I wanted to tell the world about it. I was like, I got I to gotta draw this or write this, but I got to tell the story. And I immediately realized that the English language does not have a word for the sort of process that I was describing. And the process I was describing was building a business, but not a business that has been done before. So how do you describe somebody who goes out and starts a business? Well, that's an entrepreneur. But I have a friend of mine who started a coffee, you know, coffee company, and um, he's an entrepreneur. He opened up a coffee company. He has coffee shops. But coffee shops have been around for centuries. Like, you know how to make a coffee shop. Or if you don't know how to make a coffee shop, you can go to a trade show where they will teach you all the stuff you need. You can go, you know, hire this vendor to, you know, set up your, uh, uh, your, your espresso machines. Like, coffee has, is a solved problem. So how do you differentiate somebody like that from um, somebody who is doing something that has never been done before? So I got another friend of mine who's trying to launch satellites for super cheap. So he's buying old Russian fighter planes, stripping all the crap out of them, loading them up with a missile, and he sends them up to 90,000 feet, which is our service ceiling, puts it in a Mach 2 power dive, and then pulls up at the last second. So he's got all this kinetic energy, and he's 70,000 feet up, and he fires a missile. Well, it turns out if you fire a missile from 70,000 feet up going Mach 2, you don't need to have a very big missile because there's so much energy in the thing to begin with. So he thinks he can launch satellites cheaper. Now, where's his trade show? Where's the, oh, I'm buying old Russian fighter jets and sending them up into the stratosphere. Trade, like, there's nothing. He doesn't get this. He, he's living in a different set of rules. He's living in this world where we needed, I needed to be able to describe that. So it turns out the word entrepreneur 
was originally used and popularized to describe the person who's doing something new and weird, and it might not work. It was the original use of the word. Now, it has since come to be mean, to mean just business. You can say, you know, you're, a, you're an entrepreneur because you started a business. That's a correct use today. But the ancient use, the 100-year-old use, the use that Joseph Schumpeter and, 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 and you know, an economist were using 100 years ago, meant somebody who was doing something different. So I, uh, sort of pedantically in the book, go back 100 years and I say, we're going to use this word, but we're going to use it in its archaic definition because that's the only word we have that, we can, that I can use to describe it. And, and I wanted to be able to differentiate what it is like to not copy because, look, I think, I don't want to write the book. Writing a book's a pain in the ass. I'm, I'm a very slow writer. It's very tough for me. It, I wasn't like, oh, God, i got to write another book. But I had to write this thing because I looked for the explanation of the phenomenon that I'd seen. Nobody has ever explained it. And then I understood why. Well, how are they going to explain it? They, there's not even a vocabulary to cleave off the part that you want to talk about. So I needed to sort of dust off the old definition of entrepreneur and then, um, and then go and find examples that supported my thesis. And so when did you realize that you yourself fell into that category of entrepreneur versus business person? I'm, I'm still sort of realizing it. So, so by my definition, entrepreneurs are people who uh, solve problems that have not been solved before and sometimes fail to solve problems that have not been uh, solved before. And I'm certainly in that latter category. I've got a lot of problems that I've worked on that I still don't have solutions to. Um, but I've, I've also had the fortune of you know, doing some stuff that hasn't been done and then having it work. Uh, and then seeing the results, and the results are tremendous. And so it's, it, it's just a great thing when it works. I mean, when it finally works, I should say, because you know, typically, at least the path that I've taken, it's like failure, 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 failure. Oh, something kind of succeeds, but then that success creates two other problems. Now, so you've got to solve both of these. You do that enough, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to die because you run out of energy or resources or just time, um, or you're going to succeed, and when you succeed, you will basically be in possession of this thing called an innovation stack. You will have done so many different things, and those different things will interrelate and influence each other, that what you have will look like nothing else in the market, and it will behave like nothing else in the market. And even when Amazon decides to try to copy what you just did, they won't be able to. Even Amazon, with all their resources and talent, they couldn't do it. And this pattern is what creates great solutions to new problems. And you mentioned earlier that you've known Jack Dorsey since he was a high school student and was working for for your company. And so, I mean, tell me, when did you first realize that that he had some of these qualities of an entrepreneur? Well, he had a first quality that was demonstrated uh, uh, first night because we made him pull an all-nighter with us. Like the, (laughs) the day he was hired, we were in this panic. Uh, we'd made a giant error, and we just needed all everybody we could. As a matter of fact, that's how we got to him because we were we were literally like hoovering up everybody from around uh, you know the location where our company was, and uh, his mother ran the coffee shop that sold us the chocolate covered espresso beans that we were using to keep everybody awake. Like this was before like Ritalin was you know uh, widely available, so we'd stay awake by you know munching on uh, on caffeine. Um, and Marcia sold us the beans, and she uh, let us hire her son. And I think she regretted it because, like, we sent him home at 5 a.m. that morning from his first day at work. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I met Jack. So, so, you know, quality one, tenacity, got it. Uh, survive on little sleep, uh, got it. You know, um, I later discovered that Jack is just incredibly competent. He's quiet. He's not a sort of a bombastic person. But he's really good, and it just, it just shows through. And you mentioned earlier you have almost like a brother-like relationship with him, and uh, you were so defensive of him the first time he was pushed out of Twitter. I mean, what are your thoughts now that there's been this recent activist investor push once again to potentially push him out of the company, and, and uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, I mean, come on. You guys have tried that before. 
You've, you've kicked him out twice. Leave him, let him run his company. You kicked him out once, it didn't work, you brought him back. You kicked him out a second time, you brought him back. You kicked him out, you didn't kick him out the third time. I think they've, they've come to some terms. But I mean, come on, guys. Like, who else but Jack is going to run Twitter well? And they think that Twitter, again, I, look, I don't know anything about Twitter. I don't have anything to do with the company. Um, but I would say this. Jack is a fantastic leader. He's a guy who thinks very deeply. And this whining about the fact that he's running two public companies, look at the results. You know, like, I think... Square's been phenomenally successful, and I see why he works there. I assume he's working at least as competently at his other company, and I'd leave him alone. Got it. What, what do you think it is about him that gives him the ability to run both of these large companies successfully? He's single. <laughs> single, no kids. I, no, I ask my friends. I don't know. Are you married? I'm not. No. You're not. Okay, so here you go. Um, all the married folks out there will get it. Like, if I said, okay, you can... Yeah, not have a family, not have kids, but have to run another company, no problem. <laughs> I know, I mean, I'm not saying the family is not, not, a, not a good trade-off, but I'm saying that, uh, well, actually, that's why I left Square. I mean, I was, I had my first child, and, and I couldn't work 12-hour days anymore uh, in good kind. I wouldn't know my kid. And it wasn't fair for me with all the other people working those hours for me to stay around and, you know, what, put in an eight-hour day and go home, see you guys? No, I can't do that. So I, I actually, that was when I left. It was after my son was born. Um, so, yeah, I think, Jack, it, well, you've got a tremendous work ethic. Um, but, yeah, he's, he is not dragging along, uh, you know, a, a minivan full of sippy cups. And you mentioned your departure from Square, but I wanted to ask, you know, how did your life change when the company IPO'd? Oh, after the IPO, um, I was all of a sudden taller than I was ever in my life. No, people start treating you differently. Um, my life didn't change all that much um, because I was living in St. Louis. Um, I had already paid off most of my debts, so I wasn't in debt. It turns out going from, uh, you know, from a lot of debt to no debt is a big deal. Going from no debt to a lot of money isn't that big a deal. It's not for me. I don't spend that much. Uh, so um, so the, that, that was weird. Um, but people started treating you differently. And I, I, I noticed that um, this is probably the biggest downside. I stopped getting good feedback. Um, so I just spent uh, three years writing a book. And I think it's a good book, but I can't tell because everyone says, Jim, your book's great. And I'm like, yeah, well, maybe you're just saying that. Like, like, I think if I was sort of my old poor artist self when I was, you know, much grubbier and, uh, and sort of less known, um, I would probably be getting more feedback that the book, you know, might suck. Uh, so, I don't know, you've read it, you know, but you don't have to be honest. I mean, the cameras are on, so. <laughs> no, it's, it's really a fascinating account of just your own experience. And, and also, I thought your research into so many other founders was yeah, fascinating so, as well. So, Kat, like, I hope it's not about me. Like, the book is not about me. Believe me, you don't want to buy a book about Jim McKelvey. Um, the Story of Square is good. But the reason I include The Story of Square is two, twofold. One, it supports the thesis, and two, I've got firsthand knowledge. I've got complete firsthand, you can't get it anywhere else knowledge, what it felt like, what I could, what I could say. But the rest of the book, and by the way, I wasn't going to write it unless I found examples of the phenomenon elsewhere, because otherwise it's just like me talking about me, and that's boring, you know? So, uh, so it's not a book on Square. It's not a book about me. It's a book on a phenomenon that allowed us to create Square, even though we didn't know what it was, okay? And you'd say, well, if you, did, if you built Square without knowing what it is, why is it important to know? And the answer is, it gets back to the, sort of the core of the, the, the reason I wrote it. I know, I, I wrote this when I was writing this, when I was typing the words, I had a person in mind. I know who she is. She's incredibly competent. She is so good. She has so much potential, but she's one of these people who disqualifies herself from trying to do new things because she says, well, I have no qualifications to do this new thing, and that's heartbreaking because, look, being qualified is the right answer if qualification is possible, but if it's not, then you're in my world, 
then you're an entrepreneur, then you're going to do stuff that's going to feel really weird. So I'll give you an example. Uh, if I want to fly home today, okay, my friend flew me up here. Um, he's got a little plane. If I want to take control of that little plane, I got to go out and get, get certified. I got to go get an FAA medical. I got to take 40 hours of training. I got to pl- pass all these tests. I have, to, I have to do all this stuff that make me a qualified pilot. And even then, I can only fly if there are no clouds, right? So, so that's good. I, it would be bad for me to just get in his plane and say, oh, I'll, I'll take over from here, Greg. Sit, you know, scoot over. Today, you can be a qualified pilot, and you should be a qualified pilot. But what about the Wright brothers? What about the first person who ever flew? So Orville Wright gets in the plane. How's he going to steer the thing? He doesn't know. He doesn't even know if it's possible. You know, he doesn't know because there can be no qualifications to be a pilot because nobody's ever been a pilot. Nobody's ever built a plane. So, you know, you got two pilots here. Okay. The pilot of 2020 better have a type rating, better have a medical, better have all this stuff that they need. The pilot uh, of the first Wright flyer couldn't be qualified. Okay. So back to my friend. She has been raised and trained, as we all have, that we need to be qualified to do the things we're doing. That's what school's about. It's getting you qualified. Check in the box, right? right. Um, learn from people who know it better than you. All this stuff. Apprentice. That's good. That's the way it should be, except in the case if you're doing something that hasn't been done. And we have so many problems in the world that have not been solved yet that if we have great people like my friend, who I really wrote the book for, disqualifying themselves because they don't feel qualified in a situation where they're never going to feel qualified. Nobody's ever going to feel qualified to do something that hasn't been done. I've done a bunch of stuff that hasn't been done. And you know what? Every time, my hands sweat. I get, I get nervous. And, and I'm never qualified. I mean, what was I qualified to start a payment system? I was a glass blower with an economics degree and a computer science degree. I knew zip about payments. You know, Jack's only professional credential, he's a, gla- he, he's a, he's a massage therapist, mm-hmm. right? The, the biggest bank in the world started with a guy who's a produce vendor. He sold lettuce, okay? Biggest furniture store in the world. Started with a guy who was, uh, you know, 17 years old. Kicked out of his own country. But, you know, 17-year-old starts the biggest furniture company in the world. They're not qualified to do this. But it turns out qualification is effectively irrelevant if you're doing something new. And so I wanted to, I just wanted to reach out and give a, give a taste of what it's like and then stories that hopefully will entertain you but at least make you feel when you are in the middle of doing something that you are not qualified to do that it's okay and that others who are also not qualified to do the great things that they did were in similar situations. What did it feel like when you were at the very beginning of starting Square and realizing how much you needed to learn about the payment space? I mean, I remember there's one anecdote in the book where you're working on the product and you realize that, hey, I think we're breaking about 17 different laws right now. (laughs) So how did you overcome that hurdle? Oh, my God. Um, I ignored it. Uh, We ignored it. I stopped counting at 17. Yes, we discovered on the very first day that what we were doing was against all these rules. And I turned to the guys and I was like, what we're doing is illegal. <laughs> and it turns out they were, it was not just illegal in one way. It, it, it violated 17 different rules and regulations from the way MasterCard and Visa require you to, uh, you know, sort of handle uh, uh, card present transactions to, you know, all of our banking relationships and all of our, you know, just tons of stuff. You know, KYC, OFAC, all of those stuff. Um, and uh, 17 laws and rules and regs. Which we have since complied with. I say that in Washington. We are now compliant and heavily audited and got that one. But it took us a year and a half to get, get compliant. So, um, so we built it anyway. We turned the machine on. Even the machine wasn't licensed. It was, there was no UL certification when I plugged the first square reader into the first iPhone. Um, and, but there was also no spark and explosion either. So it turns out it worked. The system worked. And because the system worked, we then had this thing that we could point to to get the people whose laws needed to change to accommodate us to change those laws or change those rules. Now, in some cases, we would change our rule. We, we tried to change our system, become compliant with the whole system, but there were a few cases where we absolutely were in violation of something that had to be changed in order for Square to exist. So we would go to them and we would show them this beautiful thing that worked. It's just it violated their rule. It was like, you need to change your rule. And they did. 
And another, you know, founder in your book who starts out in a highly regulated space and, and has to break some rules at the beginning is is the founder of Southwest Airlines, of course. And those are some of, you know, the most fascinating parts of the book. I thought your trip down to Texas oh, to meet yeah. him and, and tell me a little bit about that. And, and I know he passed away a year ago. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what his legacy has has been in the business world. I so miss Herb Keller. He was so generous. I probably got the last living interview with the man. Um, at least the last one I've ever heard. Um, he, he welcomed me down to Southwest Airlines because at the time I just had this theory, okay? And I had all this historical data. I had all the great data from history. The great thing about data from history is that, you know, guys like A.P. Giannini who died in the 40s can't argue with you. Like if I'm dead wrong, he will not return from the grave to, you know, go on C-SPAN and contradict me. Like it's just not going to happen. So, but that's, that's a cop-out, right? I needed to, I had this theory, and I wanted to take my theory and hold it to somebody who'd been there and say, okay, Herb, you have lived through something I think was similar. What was it like? Herb, he was incredibly generous. He was super fun. He smoked two packs of cool menthols while we were down there. And this guy said, hell yeah. He's like, same thing happened to me, only worse. Like, Herb, like every story that I had of somebody doing something nasty to square or some mistake. Herb had like five that were worse with Southwest. Herb was like, it was like, it was like watching the world through a magnifying glass, through a smoke-filled magnifying glass. He was so cool and so fun. And he reminded me of how much fun it was. And, um, and, and I tried to capture that in the book. And, and you know, I had this whole graphic novel thing ready for Herb. And I, I was like, Herb, I got to make you a superhero. And I actually asked Herb for permission to do that. And Herb, Herb said no. He said he, thought, he said he felt it wasn't dignified enough. So I, so I was like, okay, man. I was like, you, you can have a cape. He's like, I don't need a cape. You know, he's got a tattoo. Um, so Herb, um, Herb did not want to be portrayed like you know I did for Giannini. But what a man. And what a great company they've built. And if you, if you know what the world of air travel was like before Southwest, it was this exclusive provenance of the rich. Like, you could only fly if you were rich. And the government, in their infinite wisdom, concluded that only rich people wanted to fly because they studied all the people on the planes, and they're like, well, there are only rich people on planes, so therefore only rich people want to be on planes. Without asking the question, like, well, what if you offered this guy an affordable fare? Well, you want to go visit his grandmother? You know? Herb changed so many lives, probably saved so many lives. There are people who can go on Southwest and get, you know, cancer treatment. Uh, at, at distant cancer centers where they've got the right equipment and then they can fly back to be with their family. Like, it's, these, these, these things are life-changing. Like, you build an innovation stack. You, you do this. You will materially improve the lives of millions of people. And Herb was the living example of that. And I'm so sorry we lost him. And there's a great story in the book when you're getting out of his car, you picked up <laughs> oh, yes. a cigarette. <laughs> pack off the ground and and he signed it for you yes so i mean like i've never asked for an autograph in my life i've never like i've got friends who like i've got one friend who's in the nba you know the nba star i've never asked for an autograph like i don't i'm not i was so starstruck by herb kelleher that i wanted his autograph but i'd filled up my notebook so there was no space left and uh he's driving me to the airport in his car his car's like just trash. It's like full of empty, uh, cool, like <laughs> cigarette boxes. So I grab a cigarette box and I hand it to the man. I was like, "Will you autograph a pack of cool menthols for me?" And uh, he was like, "Sure." <laughs> so he grabs a pen and we he signs the thing. And that is my most prized possession. It's uh, it's sitting in my office in this little case that I'm building for it. It's very special. That's wonderful. And you mentioned that innovation stacks can change lives. Uh, oh, yeah. When you think about that, what, what do you think the legacy of, of Square is and how has it changed people's lives? Oh, my God. Square has allowed people to go into business for themselves. I mean, so we're right in the middle of the coronavirus. Like, I don't know when this thing's going to air, but like, life's going to change, folks. Okay. Uh, and a lot of people who are working for big, big companies may not be working for them after a while. And uh, self-employment is a viable option, but it's only viable if you can get paid. And let me tell you, if you sell something that costs more than 100 bucks, nobody carries that much cash anymore, and uh, checks are basically dead. If you don't take an electronic or plastic form of payment, you will not get the money. And Square, by sort of enabling that basic tool, has 
you know, started this process. And then we started, that we, we piled on by adding all these fantastic tools so that now, like I run my little glass studio using a dozen different square tools from managing our payroll to handling loyalty programs. I don't want to make this a square commercial. I know it's not about that. But the point is, there are all these tools that the big companies used to have that now I have as a small company. You know what that allows me to do? It allows me to compete with these assholes. Like, I can do the stuff that they're doing. I don't have to worry about having, you know, the best HR system because Square will help me handle that. And so you give tools to the little people, and they can, they can compete with the big companies. And so that's what I find so gratifying about Square is when I see a small business person who, you know, is, is doing what she loves to do, and the business is working because she's got this thing that she's making or selling or doing, uh, and we're making it easy for her. So she can ignore the rest of it. That's just life-changing. And tell me a little bit about once you stepped back from Square day-to-day, moved to St. Louis, you started a nonprofit, right? Hmm. Yes, Launch Code. Mm-hmm. So, um, so St. Louis had a problem. We had a big deficit of uh, programmers. So we needed programmers. And as a matter of fact, Jack and I office, uh, ha- had an office in St. Louis that we closed because we couldn't hire enough programmers in my hometown, which was heartbreaking because I wanted you know, Square to be partially located in my hometown. Well, after I moved back, I, look, I, I learned that the problem is sort of interesting because it turns out that education doesn't work in computer pr- programming. It works for everything else. If we, need, if we need welders, we can train welders, and the, the undersupply of welders will go away. But if you need programmers, and you say, well, we'll open a school for programmers, for some reason that doesn't work. And the, re- the reason we know it doesn't work is the problem has been getting bigger. The shortage of programmers has, has been getting bigger for the last 20 years. And, well, 30 years, actually. And we've had plenty of training during that time. The problem with training, well, there are a bunch of problems, but one of the main problems is that employers won't hire newly minted programmers because they can do too much damage if they don't know what they're doing. If they've got no experience, they don't get a job. Well, no job, then they don't get no experience. So it's a catch-22. So we started Launch Code, and Launch Code is a free training program that gives you um, the skills you need for free. But the most important thing about Launch Code is that we started not as a training program, but as a job placement system. So if you had the skills, Launch Code would get you the job, no matter what your credentials were. And we figured out a way to do that. So we, had a, we built an innovation stack, and we figured out what somebody had never figured out before, which is how to place people with competent coding skills but zero experience into a company in a way that doesn't hurt that company. So we're not asking companies to be nice or to be kind or, you know, pay it forward or any of that crap. Like, no, pure greed-motivated companies hire launch coders because it is good for those good, greedy companies. It's greed-based, okay? So that job placement we then coupled with education, and we added another innovation, which is make it free. turns out free innovation, which is part of Launch Code's innovation stack, or pre, I'm sorry, free education, which is part of Launch Code's innovation stack, is magical because it does two things. It opens up the doors to everybody, and we find talented people everywhere, people you would not expect, people you would look at or, or test, and they wouldn't look or test the way you would expect, but they're great, and we can prove they're great, and we give them a free education, they get a job, they kick ass. It's a fantastic program. And so tell me a little bit, you raised some skepticism in the beginning of the interview about business books. and yes. So, As I sit here <laughs> dissing all the stuff behind me. Not all of it. No, some of them were great, but, like, I've read enough. You kind of know, right? <sighs> and so with that skepticism in mind, what, what is the biggest takeaway that you hope potential entrepreneurs take away from, from your book? That if you do something significant, you will not feel qualified to do so. And I can explain exactly why you feel that way and show you a path out. And then I'm going to show you this thing called an innovation stack, which you can build. And if you build it, you end up transforming your industry. As a matter of fact, you don't even transform it. You basically create a new industry that's different than the other industries. And, um, and you're almost beyond attack. So we've seen this again. I mean, Tesla's a great example of it in, in, in current day, and there are a dozen examples out in California right now. Um, there are probably hundreds of examples around the country. But it's just a powerful thing. And if you see the thing, 
and recognize it, you will be a little bit less scared. I say a little bit. So I don't want people to think that the book is some sort of guide guidebook or you know, no checklist. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a how-to guide, okay? It's basically the confession of somebody who's been there coupled with supporting historical evidence and then all tied together around this idea that innovation, true innovation, stuff that hasn't been done before feels differently and we don't discuss it. And what is that like? Well, let's talk about that. And hopefully, if you read it and you find yourself in a situation where you can solve a perfect problem, you won't disqualify yourself early. Like that guy, like it was heartbreaking, this guy, he's a multimillionaire. He's super successful. He's got a painting worth more than my house. All right, I'm in his living room. He told me that he shut one of his companies down. When he was six steps into an innovation stack, he said, if I'd, know, if I'd read your book, I might not have quit so early. And I sat there for a second. And I was like, what would the world be like? Because he was trying to solve a big problem. And he quit. He just like, I can't do it. And he's like, but that's because I kept getting all this negative feedback and people were telling me, like all the stuff that I talk about in the book. And he quit. And this is a guy who's successful. This is a guy who's he's complete, he's a complete badass. If I could use his name, I would. And you would all be impressed, right? But I can't use his name because I didn't get his permission to tell this story. Um, but don't disqualify yourself. Or at least know when to disqualify yourself. Or at least kind of have a sense of what it looks like. Because it's going to feel different. And obviously the book just hit shelves. But have you shared this idea of an innovation stack and, and seen it? play out successfully with, with any other budding entrepreneurs? Oh, yeah. So I'm not trying to hoard the idea. As a matter of fact, I, I think if you piece together all my interviews, you don't have to buy the book. You can, like, piece it together. I, I'm not trying to, you know, it's just, it's an easy way to, it's, a, it's an easy way to disseminate knowledge. Um, yeah, I share this all the time. And I, I work with entrepreneurs and talk to them and, and encourage them. And, and, and sometimes I actively discourage them just to see if they can handle it. Um, but I think, uh, you know, the best advice that I can give is that um, new solutions are really messy, ugly things, uh, and that we've been trained to want validation in advance. And that's going to kill you. That's going to stop you every time. And just get over that. Um, And then I hope that people will care about something enough to actually, you know, stick their necks out. Because what I found, again, with at least the great entrepreneurs that I've studied, is that none of them are doing it for the money. I mean, maybe a little bit. None of them are doing it for the fame or the whatever the you know, sort of public-facing uh, uh, you know, benefits are. Um, not that those are necessarily benefits. Um, but they're doing it because they care deeply about solving a problem. If you care enough about a problem, it will give you this tremendous motivation. See, I'm giving away another chapter right here. You don't even have to buy the book. Uh, fake, you know, I'll give you the comic, skip it. But the point is, you get that, you get that motivation to solve a problem that you really care about. And that motivation, if you care deeply about the problem, will drive you in a way that money, fame, or any other external motivator can't. And a lot of times you're going to need that because it's a lonely path. Especially when people, like even your family members, even your spouse, like I, I come home to this day and tell my wife some of the things I'm working on, and she kind of rolls her eyes and goes, ah, that ain't going to work. You know? So, you know, you, you, you got you to have something to stand on. And you talk a lot about how there's so many copycats, especially in Silicon Valley, and there's a distinction between the copycats and, and the real disruptors and innovators. What's a company that you've seen recently that you think is a real disruptor and, and that you're excited about? Oh, I love... Um, I, I, uh, I, I, so I, let, let me step back, cat, and talk about cats, copycats. Specifically. So I've got no judgment against copying. I love copying. I think copying is exactly the way to do anything. Like everything in this room. I'm pretty sure that's true. Yeah. Everything here is a copy. This, it, and, and some of it's actually fake, right? Those aren't real TVs. Um, but like it's a copy. And that's right, because people have built TV studios before. People have figured out that they need to, like, air condition this place so much that we don't sweat while we're talking. Like, they, th- this TV studio that we're in right now is a copy of other TV studios. And this desk and chair, all this stuff is copies. And that's good. 
because they all work. This chair's serving as a perfectly good chair. I haven't thought about it since I sat down. I love copying. I will always copy if there is an existing solution. But I don't believe it should stop at copying. I don't believe that we should only copy. And um, I believe that if you limit yourself to only the world of known solutions, you will deprive all of us of this new thing that you could potentially invent. So companies, I think, are doing it great. Uh, Look, I love Tesla. Um, I frankly love uh, SpaceX. I, I, I think, uh, and you know, I've only met Elon a couple of times, but like, you know, the guy who sits there and goes, "Well, you know, I'm going to land a rocket like that. I'm gonna, my, my rocket's going to land straight up and down. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm not going to, you know, take off the session, fish it out of the ocean. He's like, I'm going to stick the landing. You know, and the first five times, we've heard seven times. How many? I don't know how many times you just saw those videos. The thing falls over, blows up, right? Um, but he sticks the landing. Um, uh, the Tesla is not a traditional automobile. Like, the Tesla has a massive innovation stack. Like, you think it's just a battery, an electric motor, you are dead wrong. They're reengineering how the way the chassis goes together, how the way the suspension works, how, how the way the software works, how, how, the, how you approach a car. Like, the, like it's, there are hundreds of things that are different. There's an innovation stack in a Tesla that GM's going to have a hard time copying. Um, so I have tremendous respect for these Companies, especially because they usually get so much abuse at the early stage. Like, if you want to see a company with an innovation stack, you should almost look for the ones that are most mocking. Hmm. And we've only got a couple minutes left, so we've talked a little bit today about perfect problems. And I wanted to ask, what's the next perfect problem that you've identified that you want to solve? So the one I'm working on right now is journalism. Um, Specifically the problem that we, as individuals, have lost control of our online identities and uh, we no longer have control over part of ourselves. So right now I exist as this Jim McKelvey file in a bunch of servers, in a bunch of ad tech companies and big platforms. I don't know what's in the files. I don't know if it's being used for my good or used against me. It's, it's, just, it's just bad for me as an individual. What's, other, what's also bad for me as an individual is I've lost my economic voice. And what I mean by this is I can't pay more for good content and less for crap. So here's the problem. Most media these days is monetized using advertising. So there's some subscriptions at work for a bunch, you know, a handful of publications. But most publications and most, you know, videos are supported by, actually, you're, you're Washington Post. You're, you're one of the five. Washington Post, Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and The uh, uh, Economist. Okay? If it's not one of those five. Um, so actually, somebody at your institution, I think it was Celeste Prakash, uh, tried to talk me, talk me into doing this back in 2016 of building a micropayment system. And the reason he wanted to do this and the reason I've been doing this um, is because all of us as consumers want to be able to pay more for good stuff and less for bad stuff because that's how we signal what's good. So I'm about to go out and have lunch in D.C. And I'm going to spend my money at some restaurant. And I'm probably going to eat a vegan because I'm, I'm, I, I eat a plant-based diet. So I'm, if I buy a bunch of expensive vegetables and pay more for like a plant burger than I would for a real hamburger, that's a vote for a plant-based diet. That's a vote that gets tabulated. And if I pay 20 bucks for a burger, that's 20 votes for this sort of thing that, I'm, that I want. Now, we tabulate all those, of, all those votes, and that's what gives us quality in everything. But it doesn't work online because the screwy thing about online consumption is that if I trick you into watching something for 10 seconds, I make the same couple of pennies off those 10 seconds as if I create 10 seconds you love. So you're a journalist. This is what you do for a living. You need to get paid. You fact check. You have a whole organization behind you. They need to get paid. And you know who's going to pay for that? Consumers like me who, who consume your stuff. Well, I need to pay you more because you have a big organization that has to create that quality. And it's not a judgment of like who's right and who's wrong. It's simply a way of saying that humans need to be able to express their preferences. Otherwise, we'll be left with crap. So think of it, again, in terms of food. If we pass a law in D.C. that every meal was 10 bucks, would you like it? What happens? You say, oh, I'll go to a great restaurant tonight. I'll go to, you know, fancy steak shop. No, they, they, they just went out of business because they can't put a fancy steak in, your, in front of you for 10 bucks. Now, you won't starve because what will happen is 
the business model to replace it is, oh, we'll just make the cheapest crap we possibly can and sell it for 10 bucks. And that's the world we live in, in journalism. And what I think is a crime is the fact that what we become is this combination of a little bit of what we eat and then the rest is what we put in our heads. And the model for what we eat pretty much works. The model that what we put in our heads, the material that you create as a journalist, is now being economically incentivized by this system that rewards cheap. And thank God Jeff is rich. And thank God Amazon is a great company because Amazon made Jeff rich and Jeff employs you and probably loses money in the deal. Thank you, Jeff, for employing Kat. But the point is we shouldn't have to live in that world. And that's what I'm working on right now. That's fascinating. Well, that's unfortunately all the time that we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us to talk about the new book. And um, again, it's the innovation stack. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards. Please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.